Welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theater Company, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Today, we have a very special guest, Janet Cowell, who runs the um, Dorothea Dix Park Conservancy uh, here in Raleigh. Uh, Janet uh, Cowell, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. It is my pleasure indeed. Um, We thought it would be interesting to talk with you, given that our next production is uh, The Cherry Orchard by Anton Chekhov, which is a, a play about a a group of ruling class um, uh, folks uh, in another time in another place who um, through neglect and and lack of concern for uh, the the growing uh, underclass uh, decided to um, ignore everything and carry on as as is. And uh, and with the result being that they squandered their uh, inheritance uh, and their legacy and so talking with somebody who's working on a big project like the Dorothea Dix Conservancy felt like an interesting and and good idea. Janet, before we talk about that, though, I'd love to hear just a little bit about you. Uh, Can you tell us where you're from originally, how you got involved in originally, I guess, in politics and and then the transition over to what you're doing now? Sure. Um, I am originally uh, from Memphis, Tennessee, and um, got involved or interested in politics, I guess, for a couple of reasons. My dad was a Methodist minister and my mother was a public school teacher. So we talked about public issues at the dinner table and um, always cared about policy and community. Um, Nobody was specifically in uh, politics. And then um, spent time overseas and was actually in China during the democracy movement in 89. I studied uh, Mandarin and had studied uh, German as well, which gave me exposure to a lot of different forms of government. So I lived in a colony in Hong Kong, um, People's Republic of China, um, military dictatorship in Indonesia. But it it kind of gives you an appreciation of uh, living in a place where you have a vote, where your vote matters, where you can kind of impact community decision-making and um, so all of that inspired me to get involved in politics. And I came to North Carolina just because I was attracted to, um, you know, universities and progressive, uh, inclusive state in many ways. And um, so was glad to do that. I think Dick's Park, you know, is a continuation of that service in trying to build a park that is meant to be for everyone and obviously has a lot of impacts on the broader uh city of Raleigh, but also, you know, on the region and state. Sure. And uh, the, the work in China, was that um, studies or um, uh, what took you over there? That, that seems like a, a, an interesting uh, w- way of uh, spending your youth. Uh, uh, was, was that about uh, studying over there or did you have uh, business interests over there? Uh, so it started with studies. Again, I studied Mandarin and then I went and there was an exchange program at um, Nanjing University um, on the Shang, um, uh, Yangtze River uh, in sort of middle south. And then um, went back and lived and worked in Asia for another three years, um, ended up in the stock 
market industry. So as a securities analyst in Hong Kong and in Indonesia. Um, so that was um, how I, yeah, three and a half years in Asia. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Raleigh was selected just because it uh, appealed to you um, demographically or um, what, did you have family connections here? No, I'm, I have ancestors. I had a, a great, great, great grandfather who was born here and uh, left in 1835 uh, and then moved. So my entire family is mostly in uh, northern Mississippi and western Tennessee and settled there in the 1800s. So anyway, no, there was no immediate family. Um, it was really, again, the attractiveness of a progressive southern state. Um, Tennessee, my home state, um, had become much more conservative. Um, It was not a place I really wanted to go back. I saw North Carolina as a more inclusive, uh, more progressive state. And um, indeed, you know, it it was. And I had 15 years in public office, um, which were, um, you know, amazing. You were uh, in the state legislature. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? How did that come about? So I'd served in the Raleigh City Council as my first office. And then um, I was in the state uh, General Assembly in the state Senate. Part of that transition was, as you know, in uh, North Carolina, a lot of the power resides at the state level. Cities are just entities of the state. And you quickly find out that a lot of, uh, a lot of constraints at the city level and that the General Assembly here has a lot of power. Um, so I ran for the state Senate when a seat opened up, served, and then um, had some people approach me about running for treasurer. And um, that was an open seat. So I ran for treasurer, given my past experience with finance and, um, and won that to so serve two terms as state treasurer. Right. That's right. When you, uh, when you started at the city council, did you have a particular agenda that you were looking to support? Um, uh, how did, what, what drove you into that, that, that uh, decision? A lot of people think about that, but not that many people take that step to actually do it. What, uh, what drove you into that? Yeah, I, I think at the time I was very involved with the Sierra Club and um, getting to uh, your play of cherry trees, right? Uh, tree protection was a big issue. Um, when I was running, there had been a lot of growth. Uh, this was in 2001. So there had been a lot of uh, growth in Raleigh in the 1990s, right? Pretty big boom town. A lot of trees coming down, um, not a lot of rules around that. And I think there was sort of a, I came in on the, on the sort of when the pendulum was swinging back and people really were concerned about um reinvestment in downtown, saving trees. Um, So we worked on a lot of, um, I also worked on recycling. So kind of an environmental um, usability, sustainability platform. Green greenways and that sort of thing. I know that uh, Charles Meeker uh, spoke often about uh, that that topic uh, in his uh, various campaigns for mayor. Uh, You and he were aligned uh, throughout that, when you get when you got to the state um, government, did you find that a, a more difficult um, uh, ground to to plant those kinds of seeds, so to speak, or did you uh, did you find a receptive audience there as well? 
you know, I did run a number of bills in the Senate on electronics recycling. So we did create one of the first electronic recycling programs in the Southeast uh, on clean water um, building. I did um, some bills on water and energy conservation and buildings. Um, so I did have some success and I think it was just an area where no one else was covering that at the time. And also given my more of a business background versus a legal background, those kinds of you know return on investment and um, those kinds of issues were attractive. I will say, I think Senator Bass Knight was receptive to some, as you know, he had a coastal, it was, he was the president pro tem of the Senate during my term and two terms yeah. and uh, obviously had some environmental leanings given the fact that he ran a restaurant, had concerns about um, food, you know, and uh, the environment as it came to agriculture and um, what we were eating and then also uh, just coastal, you know, environmental issues. So There's, uh, there's not nearly enough of that focus. Um, it, it seems to me, uh, we, we've just come through a, a, a couple of winter months that felt very much like mid-summer months to me. Um, are there things happening at the, at the state or the federal level, as far as you can tell, that are going to have a significant impact on climate issues going forward? Or do you think those, those ideas have been um, abandoned largely? Uh, you know, there was a, actually a climate task force back when I was there um, in the early aughts, so 20 years ago. Um, I think, you know, we've come a long way on certain issues like rooftop solar. Uh, I know you've got proposals for offshore wind. Um, so I think there will be progress on these issues. As you know, there's a lot of vested interest in a myriad of you know more traditional players, and so uh, the breakthroughs that come. Um, but clearly, given some of the storms we've experienced, the hurricanes, um, flooding, um, even some of the you know uh, terrorism kind of acts uh, on the on Moore County on the substation. Um, right. I think all those right can change policy over time. Good. And so, so that leads me uh, uh, to the, cons uh, the Conservancy and, the, and Dick's Park. Can you give the, the listeners to this podcast a, a brief uh, outline of how that came about, how that park came about, what its history is and what its future uh, is hoped to be? Sure. So uh, as you know, Dick's Park, uh, originally it's on 300 acres uh, right near downtown Raleigh, originally native lands before European colonization. Um, it was uh, just hunting grounds. I don't think it was, you know, some core center piece of any one tribe's um, domain. Um, it was then in the late 1700s after a lot of the Native Americans were driven west. Um, uh, Theophilus Hunter, the Hunter family, um, had a plantation here um, for, um, you know, from the 1700s up through, you know, obviously the Civil War. Um, they then sold a portion to the state um, in the 1850s for a mental health hospital. Um, that hospital operated here uh, from the 1850s till 2012. 
when the advent of um, modern day drugs um, for mental health, um, community-based care and other things, um, forced the closure of hospitals all over the country. Um, we were no exception. And then um, they opened up a uh, hospital in Butner. Um, and of course, more recently, we've had Wake Med ads and beds. So mental health has continued to be um, an ongoing challenge of services, but Dix was a key part of it for um, many, many years. And, and today remains the administrative headquarters of Department of Health and Human Services through 2025, they'll be moving off campus. And in the meantime, um, citizen groups um, formed when uh, the legislature decided to close the hospital, hoping to save this land um, as a public space for the state, um, a central park for the capital city. And um, there were several different community groups, but those all coalesced into the conservancy. The, the state did indeed sell the land to the city in 2015, and um, it is now owned by the city of Raleigh. And the conservancy operates as a partner with the city in, in um, developing the park. What is uh, what is the mission of the conservancy? What what is the uh the the work that you're doing right now um uh, i guess you're having to wait uh, until the state entirely moves out but where where have you gone so far and where do you hope to go with the uh, with dorothea dix well so obviously fundraising raise a big one um the city does not really fundraise they they did a large public bond so they've they've supported the park through the purchase and through a parks bond um, and other ongoing operating dollars the conservancy has raised about 65 million dollars to date and we have renovated buildings we have done early park improvements uh we've contributed, will contribute 20 million towards the Gibson Play Plaza. So major capital construction. We're now moving into um, where we're actually may operate buildings, you know, renovate buildings. Um, we'll probably be operating concessions um, starting next year. So uh, it's a major operating partner to the city. Where does that 65 million come from? Is that individual contributors or corporations or wh uh, where's the money coming from? Yep, um, primarily individuals and family foundations. Um, we do have about half dozen corporate, major corporate donors, including um, Martin Marietta, State Employees Credit Union, um, Truist, a lot of the, I would say the banks have been quite generous. And then some of the more construction and real estate, um, Gregory Poole, Caterpillar um, is a donor. So. Um, but yeah, families and individuals have been uh, generous today. Terrific. And and what is the what is the vision for the park? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yep. So the city hired a master planner, um, Michael Van Valkenburg, in um, 2019 to develop a plan, and that plan was approved by the city council. Um, like I said, about three years ago. Um, that plan, the vision of this is to be, be, you know, a welcoming space, an inclusive space, a space where people can learn and grow and, you know, make friends and commune and have happy moments and have restorative time in the woods. And um, um, right. So it is a public park and it is, um, you know, evolving in that direction. So, uh, again, if you come out here now, you'll see 
20 acres on the east side by Lake Wheeler under construction, um, stone houses under construction. And, um, you know, the chapel is open as a community center. So um, already getting um, about 300,000 visitors a year. Very nice. The, um, the last question I wanted to, to ask you, uh, Janet, is about um, the, the city of Raleigh as a whole. Um, you've, you've been a, a quiet but, uh, but critical part of the city's growth now for you know, 25 or beyond almost 30 years, I guess. Um, do you uh, do you think the city's going in the right direction right now, and um, and if so, how? And if not, uh, in in what ways would you like to see change? Well, I will say, you know, having grown up in Memphis, you realize that the city of Raleigh was really a fairly small place, and you even look at the population, like during the Civil War, you know, this was a seat of government, but. Um, it was a pretty small, right, government town, capital city, uh, universities, but no major business headquarters, no ports, no, you know, I mean, it was a small place. And I, I think it's become, you know, obviously a lot of growth after the Research Triangle Park was formed and, and again through the 90s when I first moved here and then more recently just, you know, booming. And I think people underestimate, you know, just the wave of financial capital and investment monies coming into this city, the attractiveness of Raleigh, the growth that's coming on a fairly small base. And that's a lot for any city to absorb. I mean, it's, it's a nice problem to have in many ways, but obviously um, has a set of challenges of how do you absorb that and still have the livability and the best things that everybody likes about Raleigh. So I think that's, you know, how I would summarize the current state, which is, um, I think people sometimes look for, you know, somebody to blame as they have these emotional sense of loss of change and um, right. affordability issues. And I, I, you know, I certainly having served on city council would say there is no, you know, there's no simplistic answer to the challenges that we have. And, um, you know, we do have a very smart population here. <clears throat> I mean, you know, universities, but just a very thoughtful, educated population. And I think, you know, we can together, you can solve these problems. And I think, you know, public input communication is critical. And I think that's what a lot of this last election was about. And I think, um, so I think in that regard, we're heading in the right direction of, making sure there is, you know, we do solve these problems together because no one person can do all this. <laughs> we, uh, we, when we were in England with a group of people last fall, we saw a play about the life of um, Robert Moses, who, yeah. who was mm -hmm. the, the more or less the architect of the modern version of New York yeah. City, Long Island, and yeah. um, mm -hmm. based, based on that book, The Power Broker, I think. And Yep, I um, read about half of it. it it's, it's a tough slog. Uh, yeah, it's about 1,500 pages or so, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but it, it, it made very clear the, the danger of, um, of too much power being invested into one person's vision 
um, I think, and, and the need for um, conversation beyond, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the person who might uh, wield the, the most power and, and influence in a, in a city. And I, I do feel like we're, we're not making that mistake. I feel like the city is really uh, working with the individuals and trying to hear, uh, trying to, trying at least to listen to input from outsiders. I know that's been a, a critical part of your um, past. You were, for us, when we first started out, you were one of the very few um, uh, people at both the city council and the state legislature that was willing to take calls, and, you know, uh, answer emails and all those things. And um, and so we uh, we appreciated that then and, and appreciate it even more now as we've come to understand how rare that is. Um, Janet Cal, thank you, um, thank you for that, and thank you for this, um, and continued uh, uh, good luck, or as we say in the theater, break a leg with um, with the conservancy, and uh, we look forward to all that uh, your work will uh, generate over the coming uh, months and years. So, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This burning coal production is sponsored by the Classical Station. Listen at 89.7 FM or online at theclassicalstation.org. Our production of The Cherry Orchard will run from April 6th through the 23rd. For tickets and information, visit us at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001.